You're listening to a Scottish Poetry Library podcast. Irregular. Let me be the heretic. Our history is too full of exciting opportunities for young men with ambition. I'll list you no lists. Prepare your own. Prepare to work hard under strict discipline. Excuse you, no excuses. For substantial rewards. I'd rather be irrelevant when they're good than bad when they're bad. And better my own coward than a key position in an expanding lack of concern. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Scottish Poetry Library podcast series. My name is Colin Waters and I will be your host for the next 30 minutes or so, during which you will hear an interview I conducted with the poet and novelist Ken MacLeod. Ken is perhaps best known as a writer of science fiction novels. He has been shortlisted for the Arthur C. Clarke Award, no less than on six occasions. His most recent novel is Descent, which was published in 2014 by Orbit. Now, last year, Ken co-authored a collection called Poems. Half of the book featured, as the title suggests, poems by Ken, the other half by his fellow Scott, the late, very much lamented author Ian Banks, who Ken had known since his school days. As a consequence of the publication of that book, we asked Ken if he would be the editor of our online anthology, Best Scottish Poems 2015, which we'll be publishing on our website at the end of March. I caught up with Ken last August, just after he'd accepted the epic task of reading all of the Scottish poetry published during last year. We recorded the interview in Argyll House. During the period, the SBL staff were based outside the library due to its refurbishment. Now, I only mention that to explain why you can hear the wind whistling through the building in the background occasionally during the interview. Argyll House was a good place to work out of during the period we were away from the library, but it did occasionally sound as if we were working in a haunted house. As you'll hear during the interview, Ken talks about editing Best Scottish Poems 2015, how his collaboration with Ian Banks came about, and writing a riposte to Elliot's Wasteland. Ken, I I think there was an element of surprise when it was announced that Ian Banks' last book would be a volume of poetry, but there there was plenty of clues in his novels that he was a fan of poetry and occasional writer of verse, wasn't there? Yes, the very first publication of Ian Banks that saw print was a poem 041 which is in this collection and appeared in New Writing Scotland 1984. The first couple of his mainstream novels didn't, as far as I can recall, have any reference to poetry in them, but his first big science fiction space opera, or the first one he wrote, which was as think the second that was published, Use of Weapons, has a poem at the beginning and at the end. And these were written by himself and modestly ascribed within the text to one of the characters who's not a poet and one who is a poet, but they're attributed to our juvenilia and early drafts. Mm. Uh, volume 27 of our collected works. <laughs> The first serious piece of writing by Ian that I recall was a poem that he wrote for high school English, and it was called Memoirs. I still recall some of the lines from that. It it begins, Into the night the city burned, and all next day. And 
there's a memorable line in it, I see, about the soldiers leaving the ruined city because the smell had grown too weak to bear. And it had this this sense of somebody who's a disillusioned mercenary or whatever, looking back on some past battle. And I think it's a character, that, that, that character who he imagined as the narrator of that poem may well have played into and been a part of how he imagined the character of Zakalwi, the anti-hero, if you like, of use of weapons. This is Zakalwi's song, which also appears in his novel Use of Weapons. Watching from the room as the troops go by, you ought to be able to tell, I think, whether they are going or coming back by just leaving the gaps in the ranks. You are a fool, I said, and turned to leave. Or maybe only mix a drink for that deft throat to swallow, like all my finest lies. I faced into the shadows of things. You leant against the window, gazing at nothing. When are we going to leave? We could get stuck here, caught, if we try to stay too long. Turning. Why don't we leave? I said nothing, stroked a cracked glass, found knowledge in the silence. The bomb lives only as it is falling. Your own first efforts at writing, were they poetry? Did you start out as a poet? Oh dear, no. I think when I that my first pieces of writing would have been short stories that I wrote for English composition. I was an early adopter of science fiction. I started reading it in my early teens, I think, like most people who get hooked on it do, as did Ian. And I suddenly realised that I could, if you had composition set for an exam, you could get away with writing a short story. And so I used to write short stories for English exams and English composition. And then I, I wrote a short story for the school magazine. And round about the same time, that's mid to late, you know, mid, mid-teens, so it was getting towards the end of my time in high school, I wrote some poems. Ian and I both had a wonderful English teacher, Joan Woods, who became a friend, you know, after school, long after we had left school. And she influenced a whole lot of uh, her pupils in that, you know, two of them became novelists and one of them became a very distinguished teacher of English himself. That's a good strike, right? Yeah, yeah. She encouraged us to read widely in modern modern poetry as well as classical, if you like. She used to bring in duplicated poems that were at that time being read in pubs and on the streets, I think, by or sold on the streets, I have been told, reliably, by young poets in Edinburgh like Ron Butlin and Brian McCabe. When many, many years later, and not so long ago, I met Brian McCabe, I amused him by quoting one of those very early poems of his to him. I had this aspiration to write poetry, and I, I wrote, wrote some too, and continued to write it. Ian's longest poem is one that's not in this collection. It's called Feu de Joie. Feu de Joie being a technical term for firing into the air in celebration. And this very long, dark narrative poem became the basis for his short, dark novel, A Song of Stone, 
some of that long poem went into A Song of Stone, and some of it appeared within the text of The Crow Road, his, perhaps his most popular and accessible, and in many ways one of his best-loved novels, I would say. And in, in that there is a, a mysteriously missing Uncle Rory, and Uncle Ro- among Uncle Rory's papers are fragments from this long poem, which contain clues to his disappearance. Yeah, that came out of Feu de Joie. So the poems date back, they start about the 70s, I guess when you were both young men starting out in your career. I guess it was quite a, a creative time, I imagine you swapping poems, stories, commenting on each other's work. Was it quite a creative time? It was, though more so for Ian than for me, I think. At that time, I, I was one of those young science fiction readers who makes the mistake from reading science fiction what they sh- really should be as a scientist, <laughs> um, which is something I, I, I tried to be and was not terribly good at. We both wrote poems. I occasionally attempted short stories, and Ian, with a far better work ethic, was focused right from the start, I think from the age of 11 or so, on being a writer. He banged out a very long novel on his typewriter at weekends and evenings and so on. I think in his when he was maybe in his final year at high school and his first year at Stirling or so. And he wrote several novels while he was at Stirling and several poems. And I wrote a few poems then, and I'm sure we bounced the poems off each other, and certainly did later. Ian, after he'd stopped writing poetry in 1981, he compiled a complete collection which he, of his work, which he hand-wrote, page-numbered, indexed. There's an index of first lines, a table of contents. So that essentially is what he selected from, transcribed into um, a Word document and sent to me. The reason, incidentally, how this came about is that in sometime in 2012, well before Ian had any idea that he was ill at all, he said to me that he had this idea that he wanted to see his poems and mine in print. I said that his poems stood up very well on their own and he said that mine would show that it wasn't just a complete ego trip for him, I think was that phrase he used once. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I agreed, and I, I wasn't, yeah, nice idea, Ian, we'll, we'll, we'll do that sometime. And not long afterwards, maybe a few days or even afterwards, this um, collection appeared in my in email inbox. And so I started scrabbling through my own poems, uh, some of which, one or two of which have been published. I've had had one poem published many years ago in Poetry and Audience, the well-known little magazine of uh, Leeds University's English department, in which many now well-known poets have had their first works Mm. appeared. Um, I am obviously not one of them, but I'm still proud to have had a a wee poem in there. And others appeared in in, uh, chat books and uh, program books of science fiction conventions, or one for a, an academic conference on science fiction. And 
several appeared in the anthology Where Rockets Burn Through, which Russell Jones, who is, I'm sure is known to yes. quite a few of our listeners, brought out uh, two or three years ago for... It was really poetry in honour of the science fiction and space poetry of Edwin Morgan. And it's a, a collection of contemporary British science fiction poetry, and very good it is too. Mm. There is that degree of credibility, if you like, to, to my poems. And I think Ian's poems, however, are very, very much worthwhile piece of work in their own right. And they cast a really interesting light on different aspects of the way Ian's mind worked, the kind of person he was. There are some interesting interweavings with his his fiction. You, you raised it there. What would you say that you, if a regular reader would get this, but uh, if you look at both your novels and short stories and the poetry, what kind of sort of um, shared subjects matter do, do the poems and uh, the novels have? That's an interesting question. Ian's science fiction is very different from mine in that almost all of it is set in far futures or what essentially amounts to the far future, well outside of current human experience, whereas almost all of mine is set pretty definitely in the near future, whether it's a matter of decades or centuries, but very different, uh, very much part of a, a possible future human history, which Ian's by and large is not. In fact, funnily enough, technically speaking, some of Ian's big space operas are set in the past, in an alien civilization, which is, you know, the civilization of a species similar to ours, but sufficiently dissimilar to uh, be nice. (laughs) (laughs) So there was really no overlap there. There was a, there's possibly a degree, actually, of, um, there's more, um, similarities, if you like, between some of my science fiction novels and Ian's mainstream novels. At one point, when I was writing my last novel, Descent, I said to Ian that what I seem to be doing here is writing an Ian, an Ian Banks <laughs> mainstream novel set in the near future. He laughed and said that sounded like a very good idea. Unfortunately, he never got to read it, but how things are. On the poetry there are, I noticed some small echoes in there are quite a few little echoes in it both he and I have poems which are about love that perennially popular subject with poets about landscape there are poems that are brief polemical squibs and there are poems that are that try to express, as it were, within one long, grand statement, our entire worldview or aspects of it, whether it's political or philosophical, mm. on the scale of difference of opinion that people have. We had differences of opinion, but by and large we were pretty much on the same wavelength, and our, our differences made for interesting conversations, but we were pretty much agreed on most things. Your poems have a really interesting cast list. You've got Stalin and Charles Fort and Spartacus makes an appearance yeah. as well. What's the, the, the through line there? Is it to do something to do with scepticism, being sceptical about utopian beliefs and about 
we're pursuing utopian beliefs too far can lead people. Is that, that's kind of where I, I, what I took from it, but <laughs> maybe you've got a different take. That's a good question. Um, I don't think they're quite like that. In a sense, they're more be realistic about our utopian aspirations. The one that refers to Spartacus also refers to wars and terrorism and so on and the costs of these um, aspirations and struggles. But nonetheless, my own feeling is that from the point of view of humanity, these struggles have been worth it. They've taken us forward. The Stalin poem is quite short and it's it's a, a, perhaps a, a little darker and more pessimistic than what I've just said sounds. Um, and I think it came out of having read Isaac Deutscher's biography of Stalin, the, one of the well-known classic biographies, um, shortly before I wrote it, and trying to think you know, through what the significance of a figure like Stalin was. Charles Ford's interesting. I mean, he's given his name to the, the phrase Fortean, which people take to mean odd, unexplained phenomena. But I think what your poem reminded me was that, in fact, he was interested in these things, but he, was, he had quite a, a rigorous testing for them. He, was, he could be quite sceptical about them, couldn't he? That's how I saw it at the time that I wrote it. That's as actually, I think, a poem that I did write in, when I was in high school, and I had just read the biography of Charles Fort by Damon Knight, who, who was a prolific science fiction writer and perhaps more influentially an editor. And Knight, I had been come across the name of Charles Fort and Fortean ideas in other science fiction. In, for example, the, some of the stories by Eric Frank Russell, which <coughs> I, I have to admit uh, don't really thrill me quite as much as they did when I read them in my teens. Um, anyway, I knew that Charles Fort was in some quarters of particularly American science fiction was a name to conjure with and I was fascinated by this biography of him. And the question of what Charles Fort actually thought about what he, what he wrote about is, I think, still open <laughs> in a very Fortean kind of way. I quite like the, the magazine Fortean Times and th that kind of strangely that strange equipoise, if you like, between scepticism and credulity. And I don't think it's a sustainable view of the world. I'm a pretty orthodox um, scientific materialist myself, but I do, I do find some of the, pro the productions of that approach quite fascinating and intriguing. One of the things that Fort never seems to have realised, or certainly never acknowledged, was that many of the stories that he recounts are taken from newspapers right across the American West in the 19th century at a time when newspaper reporters stuck out in the Midwest, you know, in some two-horse town, mm. had nothing to put in their papers, so they made stuff up. And much of what he thought was data was, was <laughs> sheer, sheer fabrication. And that is true, actually, of some almost classic elements of, uh, for example, the UFO phenomena. 
some important elements of it, like the men and some of the men in black uh, attributes, come out of <laughs> quite deliberate pranks and uh, hoaxes. Men in Black, uh, yeah. meaning not the Will Smith film, but um, the strange characters who would turn up after a UFO sighting and yeah. intimidate people who'd seen things. Yes, yes, well, that's what the MIB and um, the Will Smith thing yeah, are, too. Yeah, it's, just yeah. a, it's an expansion of that. So there, it is a wonderful example of how tales can grow in the telling. You know, The X-Files is another of how an entire mythos can grow up out of tiny scraps of speculation and and fabrication. Charles Fort. Skulls fossilized in coal, sargasso seas, frog showers, flying lights and colored rain, writing engraved on meteorites, all these and more he could record but not explain. Aristotle called theories likely stories, and this man also was not deceived. All his deductions and hypotheses were tales he went on telling, but no more believed than he believed that two plus two make four. An abnormal attitude that was completely sane, gripped by such facts. How could he set much store in the fragile constructions of the brain? You mentioned Where Rockets Burn Through, which was uh, a recent uh, anthology of Scottish sci-fi poetry, and... um, Poems contains um, examples of that as well. I wonder, I don't want to say it's like a uniquely Scottish thing, but I think thanks to Edward Morgan, there really is a real strain in Scottish poetry which is open to sort of science fiction elements, isn't there? Yeah, I should say though that um, where rockets burn through is British. Oh, British. And I don't know, you know, there are quite a few English poets from England at any rate who are in that and who, who have written science fiction poetry. But it is true that Edwin Morgan is, as far as I know, the only poet of, if you like, world standing and certainly regarded as the current, you know, if you like, national bard who had such an unabashed and joyful and overt connection with science fiction and with um, an enthusiasm about space exploration and he drew on you know cosmonauts and astronauts and the ideas about space flight in a way that I don't, don't know of any greater poet who has done that. I was very privileged in having in knowing him for a short time and seeing him a few times. I felt that Edwin Morgan hadn't been sufficiently acknowledged by the science fiction community itself. So I asked him if he would write a poem for the 2005 World Science Fiction Convention, which was held in Glasgow. And marvellously he did, and he read it on a, a recording which I made with a, with a video camera supplied by Ian Banks and held, I think, by Ian Rankin. And <laughs> All-star production. Yeah, yeah. That poem was played over the loudspeakers at the opening ceremony for that convention, and I must make the original tape and the recordings made from it 
available to the poetry library. Oh, that'd be wonderful. Yeah. The, your section of poetry ends with a long poem called A Fertile Sea, yeah. which is your response to T.S. Eliot and, and the Wasteland. And of course, um, Ian Banks' science fiction novels, there was Consider Phlebas and... Look to inward. Yeah. Uh, so what was it about Eliot um, that, that fired both your imaginations? I think the thing with Eliot is that he was a major poet who we both were encouraged to read very closely, both in our, I think, our final years at high school and certainly in our first year doing English at university. I never went beyond first year English at university because, as I said, I was doing a science degree. Uh, but Ian got a degree in English and psychology at Stirling. The Wasteland was a poem that I recall studying very closely for seminars and so on and getting lectures about. And one of the great things, of course, about the Wasteland is its obscurity. <laughs> you know, it, it sends out, it, it sets your imagination going. And at the same time, and of course there is the wonderful language of it, at the same time, there are elements of that that really are part of a deeply conservative, pessimistic view of the world, which I didn't agree with. And I would never have really thought of, um, you know, doing a kind of reply to T.S. Eliot. I wouldn't have had the, the nerve. If I hadn't come across a, a very funny poem in Wendy Cope's wonderful and wonderfully titled collection, Making Cocoa for Kingsley Amos, mm. and its Wasteland Limericks, in which all five parts of the wasteland are summed up in a limerick. I can strongly recommend them. Can I quote one of them? Please, yes. Yeah. One of them goes, A Phoenician named Phlebas forgot about birds and his business, the lot, which was no surprise, for he's, he'd met his demise and been left in the ocean to rot. <laughs> and the last one... It, it is. It is. They're all very, very apt and very funny and surprisingly, you know, precise in how mm. they they focus on the the key images from from the, the poem itself. So, with that example of irreverence in mind, I think it was, and round about sometime in the late eighties, I started writing this long poem called "A Fertile Sea," which, rather than being sort of focused around the collapsing Central Europe of Eliot, so many of Eliot's images, the post-First World War, post-Bolshevik, etc., Vienna and Germany and all of that, and a rather decrepit London. The images come from the 1980s, from the what seemed encouraging about Gorbachev's Russia and some of the darker deeds of um, both Russia and uh, other powers and you know incidents like doing a stunt for friends of the earth on, on nuclear on nuclear transports and all, all that kind of thing I know very well that it's in no way as as powerful and resonant as Eliot's 
But it, it is interesting to think that there are so many strange connections, if you like, in the 20th century itself, and ways in which you can see some things as apparently disparate as, say, the moon landings and the end of the Second World War, what joins them, as I suppose many people also have noticed, is the rockets, the rockets of Bernard von Braun, which are, in the last analysis, are what went to the moon. Mm -hmm. Strange story, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Nazi rocket scientist to uh, moon pioneer. Yes, yes. Very odd. Um, I guess we'll wrap up uh, now, but I think I'm right in saying you're, you're, you've agreed to edit our Best Scottish Poems 2015 collection. Is that true? That is true, and uh, I'm very much honoured and surprised indeed to be asked, and I'm really looking forward to doing that. I, I love the idea of having the opportunity to get a complete overview of this year's what's been written in Scotland poetry this year mm -hmm. and seeing where 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 it, where it is it'll, it might also give me some idea of what to aspire to if I ever decide to write poetry again well this is the sort of year after the referendum so it'd be interesting to see where where stands Scotland I suppose mentally absolutely I think it would be it'll be very interesting to see if any of that ferment that we saw last year has actually made its way into poetry that has been published and has a has a, a lifespan as it were which brings us to the end of another SPL podcast thank you for tuning in and thanks also to Ken McLeod who came into a windy and slightly chilly Argyle house to do that interview thanks also to Will Campbell who recorded the podcast theme tune we're launching Best Scottish Poems 2015 on Monday, 21st of March. Who has made the final lineup of 20 poems? Well, there's only one way to find out, and that's to visit our website on the 21st. Its address is www.scottishpoetrylibrary.com. We'll also be tweeting heavily about it on the 21st and uh, on the run-up to the big day. Our Twitter tag is at ByLeavesWeLive. If Facebook is more your thing, we can also be found there at SPL Scotland and we'll no doubt find a way to feature on our Instagram account, which is also to be found at SPL Scotland. We also have a SoundCloud page, would you believe, where you'll be able to hear recordings of many of the poems featured in BSP 2015. I think that's as much as I have to say on the subject currently. Uh, just enough time to wish you well. Mention we'll be publishing another podcast on our website in about a fortnight. And to say we have one more poem from Ken McLeod to enjoy. Thank you. Only a flesh wound. To sugar-coated bullets from laughing guns the paper tigers fell. Unscathed the comic hero runs through mortar, bayonet, shell. Now rank on rank they rise up to accuse me. Kraut on Tommy, yank and red. By taking sides I've added them to my private score or so of dead. Not through our parents' chromosomes is guilt transmitted, but their lives. We cannot call our sin original. It, like the rest, is plagiarised. Our lives are built on the bones of slaves. Those who rose with Spartacus, nailed up in thousands along the way, are who really died on the cross for us. 
If so much more than power has grown out of the barrel of a gun, why not the green tree, Ireland her own? Imagine soldiers lay their charge and run. podcast. For further information about the Scottish Poetry Library, visit our website at www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk, follow us on Twitter at By Leaves We Live, and find us on Facebook.